For everybody else, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. We're going to be in Ezra, chapter 9, this morning. But as you're turning, in college, um, it just feels like I look back at college, and you just, one of the joys of college is you, you just had, like, time to waste. You know what I mean? You could just waste time doing like, you didn't realize it at the time, but you really did have a lot of time. I felt like I was really busy, but I wasn't. Um, but anyway, one of the things my roommate and I would do, we, uh, we used to watch, you know, different TV shows. And one of the shows that we watched, there was, like, these, like, these um, like court cases on TV. So I don't mean, like, courtroom dramas. I mean, like, court cases, like, on TV. And not, like, not like Supreme Court, like, deliberations. Like, these have no bearing on society, but just, like, like somebody would like appear before a TV judge and the TV judge was like streetwise and sassy and smart talking and they would they would not like make their decisions based on any way what the law said but just sort of like whatever whoever they liked the most would you know they'd find in favor of and and all this kind of stuff so it'd be like two neighbors arguing about music volume there was one case where they brought that the man was accusing this other guy of stealing his girlfriend and the judge was like what do you you stole her? Like, what does that mean? Like, you, you took her? You know, he's like, no, no, like, I was dating her, and then she liked him more, and she left, you know, she left me for him, and she, like, yeah, that's on you. You know, there's just, like, this sense of, you know, they, they would bring these kind of cases and all this kind of stuff, and we just, we just found these shows entertaining, and we would watch them, but there was one case that I remember where a neighbor was stealing, was accused of stealing something from another neighbor, and so the guy who was accusing you know, he gave his case, and he said, you know, here's all the facts, you know, here's all the details, and he, he, he laid it out, and when he thought, you know, it's like, yep, this guy definitely stole it, and then he gets up to give his defense, and then he was like, you know, no, I didn't, you know, I don't even know the thing, what he's talking about, what would that be useful for, like, why would I take it, and he's like, listen, I've got alibis, he said it was stole Friday night, and so, but no, listen, and he starts calling up alibi after alibi, saying that they were at this party Friday night, and so there, you know, there was no way he could have possibly stole it, and so very clear, he's just pleading his innocence and pleading his innocence and just saying there, there's no possible way. And so the judge says, okay, well, Mr. So-and-so, whoever the, the guy bringing the charges was, well, you, I, my understanding is you have videotape, right? You have videotape of this man taking it, right? And so it's like two seconds into the video, the guy who's defending himself goes, all right, I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah, I didn't know there was video. I took it, and um, I probably look foolish now. And the judge was like, yeah, you and all your friends really look foolish now. And there's just this sense of, he, you know, they kind of, they lost the case and sort of, you know, were chagrined out of the courtroom. And I think there's a way that, that so, so often we can be like this man who, who tries to minimize sort of our sin. Who can, who, we can be like this person who, who minimizes what we are doing until we are confronted with the reality of our sin and confronted with the reality of what we've done. There's something about how being confronted with the reality of, of our wrongdoing f- forces us to face reality. He was faced with video testimony, so he was, he, he was sort of, he was confronting that reality. But I think we can be like him, not in the sense that we want to hide in this way, but we can minimize our sins and we can minimize our actions and we can think the great danger of, of sin is that we're going to get caught in our sin rather than seeing that there's great danger in sin because sin is the road that leads us on the path of death. And we can often try to avoid repentance, not seeing as repentance really is what brings life. We can miss that there's so often... That, that, that for, for the Christian, that there is life in being confronted and that there is death in hiding. In Ezra chapter 9, God's people are confronted with the reality of their sin. And so often what we see throughout the book of, of Ezra is that they often serve as the counterexample, right? They, 
they serve as the example of, of what not to do and how they went off. But, but here we see that Ezra is actually this example of what to do, of what to do in light of the fact that, in a sense, all of us live all of our lives under the videotape, that we all live under a God who sees and who knows and records all. And so we, we have here a model of, 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 what to do, of how to repent, but this isn't just how to repent when we are caught in our sin, but this is a model whether, whether someone sees our sin or not, whether, whether someone is seeing it or simply it's us who know, what does godly repentance look like? So I want to look at the, we see, we see the road of godly repentance and we see the road of restoring grace. And so the main point I want to look at this morning is the road to redemptive grace, the road to redemptive grace grace. So just a reminder where we are in the book of Ezra as, as chapter 9 begins, so as, as the book begins, right, people are in exile, they are downtrodden, they are conquered, they are at their low point in history. And then in chapter 1, God calls them back to rebuild the temple, to regain their identity, and so they come back, and there's a lot of ups, and there's a lot of downs, and there's a lot of drama along the way, and a lot of opposition and support from the king, and the internal struggles and internal triumphs, but they complete the temple, and, and the temple is built, and, and it's dedicated to the Lord, and, and, and their good times are here again, and things are going well again, but then 57 years pass after the temple is dedicated, and the scene is that sin again, is that, is that sin again is on the rise as the people of God have spiritually regressed. They have spiritually moved off their foundation and just been slowly but surely drifting away from God. And so God raises up a man, Ezra, to lead his people, to be a priest for the people and to lead them out of sin and out of drifting away back to obedience. And so in the last two chapters, we, we, we have looked at, we've seen, the, we, we've seen sort of just his coming and what was the, his journey and why did he come back. But then in chapter 9, we see the beginning of his ministry and we see that his ministry begins in responding to their sin. So the main point again is the road to redemptive grace. Let's read Ezra 9 together. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites to the Hittites to the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mix, mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in, this faithfulness, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men had been foremost. And as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God, of, uh, the words of the God of Israel because of the faith, faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord of my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed to blush and lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in, in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given, have been given into the hand of the king, kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. 
But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little revising in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended up to has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some of the reviving, to set, a, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 10. And now, O, o our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end without, with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left the remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none, for none can stand before you because of this. Okay, so again, the main point we're going to be looking at this morning is the road to redemptive grace. I want to look at three point. I want to look at that through three points this morning. And point number one is the problem of sin. The problem of sin. So again, here's the situation. Ezra comes back, and pretty early on the job, he learns the distressing news that the people of God have been intermarrying, and they've been intermarrying with the Canaanites and the Hittites and the you, you can see the list there, right? Just this, this long list of who they have been intermarrying with. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize this list as the this very, very same list that God had commanded them through Moses not to marry. That when they get back, when they went to the promised land, here's, you drive these people out of the land. You do not intermarry with, with them. And we see this reiterated in several places. So it wasn't just sort of this one-time passing commandment, but just we see this reiterated over and over and over again. Now I need to note something. This is a command given to a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But I just want to be very clear about what, what this is saying. This does not represent the Bible sort of teaching that people should not intermarry with different races or different ethnicities or nationalities or anything like that. Sadly, some have, have taught that, and it's been taught in churches, and, and we just want to recognize this is not a biblical teaching against intermarrying of, of different races or ethnicities or nationalities. But need to note, th this is in some ways similar to the instruction Paul would give in the New Testament to Christians to, to, if you are a believer, to only marry a Christian because marriage is a sacred covenant between two people. It's two people becoming one, but two people should not become one if, if the most central part of their identity of being a follower of King Jesus because he is the Lord and ruler of their life, if, the, if those two core identities are so different, 
how can two people, in a sense, be centered around the same thing if, if they don't hold that same thing in common? So, so this is similar to that instruction that we see. And in fact, we even see at times in the Old Testament God, where God blessed the marriage of two different nationalities, like in the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, because they were both followers of God. We actually see in the New Testament that these earthly distinctions only fall further and further away as God's people are not just living in one geographic community and in one city, but as, as the gospel spreads to Jews and Gentiles and goes to the end of the earth, that we see that earth, one's lineage does not define who one's marries, one's lineage does not sort of, sort of have any sort of equation to one's status in the kingdom. In fact, in the New Testament, what we see is marriages that make up different ethnicities are not only not forbidden, but they are wonderful pictures of how these very real differences in identity, though they are real and important, they are secondary to our primary identity in Christ. And so this is not a universal command to, to all people ever, but this is, a, this is a command to a specific people in a specific time and a, in a specific place. And I'd be happy to talk more about this or any other questions really just about the fundamental unity and the fundamental equality and harmony that the gospel brings. But, but just to note, but for these folks, it was, it was forbidden. And this commandment was, was repeated and it was clear. There, there, there was no sort of mistaking what, whether they were supposed to do this or not. This was not sort of some obscure law, sort of just, you know, sort of you know, in section D, row 42 of sort of the rule book. This, this is, this was, they were very aware of this. And they were not to marry these different groups because these people, the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the whole list, they did, they were not to marry them because they did not know God. And because they did not love or worship God. And he knew the danger that was posed by, by marrying people who did not love God and know God, that, they would, that his people would eventually and slowly and surely fall away from God and, and just slowly erode and drift away from him as they would assimilate to the culture that they were in. And that they would slowly but surely begin to worship their gods and live for their gods. And what we see is this is indeed what happened. This has been the pattern of the Old Testament, as is noted here. This, Ezra's noting that this, this happened before. It is what led to them being in exile. That they were so intertwined with the culture, that they were so indistinguishable from the culture, that they, that they lost their holiness. Then God brought the right consequences of exile. And so, so they, they should have been aware of this because this had just happened to them. And then they return, God brings them back, and, and as soon as the exile's over, and as soon as they're back in Jerusalem, what, what do we see? They do it all over again. And so Ezra is grieved. And to note that the sin was quite widespread, the, the, the people did it, and the priests did it, and the Levites did it, it was just all over the place. And even if one did not intermarry, there was this sort of just tacit endorsement and toleration of it. There was just this culture of this, this was acceptable and this was allowed. That God was calling them to be this holy city within the broader city, but, but that wasn't happening. They just looked like the rest of the city around them. And so we see here how there was sinful actions, there was this sinful pattern, and it was just led to this sinful spiral, how one sin just led to another sin. 
that they you know, didn't just sit in this area, but they lost holiness in other areas, that they were losing relevance for the word, that their hearts were far from God, that this was not just isolated to a few people in Jerusalem or to a few corners, but this was widespread sin and the effects of it were widespread. It was just sort of this sense that the people had lost their corporate holy identity. But to really see the significance of this, I think that we need to see the way that their sin works because, because it really, it's the same way our sin works. Now I'm, do you guys ever see, there used to be somebody that like, uh, you know, there'd be commercials that come on like, well, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. You know, you ever see those commercials? So, so let me preface this with like, I'm not a doctor and don't take any medical advice from me. Um, I, um, I really don't know anything medically about kind of anything. Um, but, like, so both my parents are nurses, okay, so that I grew up in, like, a medical house. So we'll have conversations, and they'll, they'll be filling me in on, like, a family member, and they'll, they'll, like, give me numbers. Like, they'll talk about somebody's liver, and be like, yeah, so the numbers are this. And I'll, I'll put, I have no category. Like, so, yeah, that sounds high, you know, like, yeah, that's really high. I'm like, yep, yeah, that's what I was thinking there. You know, and I'm, I'm just in my mind, like, I don't know how many, like, do I have one or two livers? And then what does the liver do? So, like, they're telling me numbers with no context, and I'm really, like, I don't this conversation. Is he doing well? Like, I, I just don't have any sort of category for this. And so I, so I don't have a lot of medical insight, but I do know um, there's, there's a difference between sort of the symptom and the disease, right? Like, I know enough to know there's, there's a symptom of a problem and there's sort of the actual problem itself. So my brother growing up, he had an upset stomach and a few hours turned into like a few days and so he was taking some antacid, but the antacid wasn't really helping because fundamentally what, what he had going on was his, his appendix was rupturing, right? And so he had an appendicitis, and so you can take all the antacid you want, but it's not going to do anything until you get it, get it removed, right? So the problem was his, his appendix was bad, and so you could give him sort of all the drugs you want, but until you remove it, like, the problem's not going away. Here's the reality. We, we sin because we are sinners, we, we, we are sinners, we, we by nature, we are those who run from God, who are hostile towards God. And even as believers, even as God's people, our old flesh wages against our new identity and our new reality. And so to see sin rightly, we need to see that sin is, is not the problem of the culture around us. One of the things that, that, that we see here is Ezra didn't blame. Well, you know, we're, it's really because we're living in this largely pagan city that, that, and there's the influence of this city. That's really the problem. He didn't see it. They were a victim of circumstances. This was not about their upbringing. Their problem and our problem is sin. And our sin and sin is not defined by what is acceptable around us, right? So often sin can be, can be sort of minimized because, well, in, in culture or in school or at my workplace or even at church, this is what sort of is allowed and not allowed. But that's not how sin is defined. God calls his people to holiness, and holiness is defined by God, not by majority practice and majority preference. I just want to say, if, if there is sin in your life, what we're going to see here further is that God is calling you and offering you to repent. Repentance is, is never excuse-making. It's never, well, you know, this brother was doing it, and he's even a little holier than I am, so I think it's okay or, or to recognize, well, it's normal in our day, so I don't know that we should really call that sin anymore. 
But where we see sin in entertainment or money use or impurity, we don't define, nice, we don't define what, what sin is by what sort of culture allows, what the church allows. It's by culture outside the church or inside the church, but, but God and God alone is who defines holiness and purity. And when we see our sin rightly, we see that we all fall short and, and that all sin pulls us away from God. And all sin puts us on the road to destruction. And so one of the things that we see here is, is Ezra saw that sin as serious and significant. And he saw that, that the sin that was taking place was, was a problem from within, not from without. So main point again is the road to redemptive grace. The second thing we'll see is the path of repentance. The path of repentance. So again, they're in sin, and, and, and Ezra just immediately repents. Need to know it, it's, the, it's the reality that the sin is happening that he finds so despairing, not that they're sort of now caught in a new way. That's not what he found despairing, right? We repent of the reality of sin, not at the discovery of sin. So we should repent when, we, when we're aware that we're sinning, not when sort of we get caught in our sin. And here's what he models so well, what repentance looks like. It certainly involved his feelings. I mean, this was a, you know, this kind of, a whole body experience for him. He tears his clothes, he tears his hair, he sits appalled, and he fasts, and he's on his hands and knees in prayer. And then just the way he describes it, he says there is shame. He wants to hide his face. There are sacrifices. Verse 9, he talks about how he, 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 that we're still slaves, and it's not just that they are sort of, sort of their status in society is, is still, some of them are slaves, but just this feeling of being trapped in the same pattern of sin over and over and how they've just been ensnared by this sin. And it, just listen to his descriptions, how he talks about how they have forsaken commandments, that they have, that they are walking in, 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 in iniquities and impurity and abominations and uncleanness and evil and guilt. And this is not a long passage, and he just has lots of descriptions for their behavior and how he feels. There is no sense that Ezra is sort of like, you know, I guess this was wrong, or technically, yeah, okay, we saw this statute. We can see where this was probably going out of bounds. I, I, this isn't Ezra just, I feel bad about sort of all the stuff that had happened, and I have some regrets. This is he sees the sinfulness of sin. He sees the sorrow caused by sin. And repentance, repentance takes sin quite seriously. It doesn't, it labels it and it owns it and it doesn't minimize it. But we also see this, that repentance is, is not just sort of regret. So there's clearly regret over all this taking place in in, in the temple, there's regret over all this taking place by the people of God, but, but it's not just regret. It's not just sorrow that it happened and feeling bad. And it's not just self-pity or shame or despair or depression. See, so often I think we can confuse repentance with we, we feel really bad. And sort of what repentance is is just sort of piling on guilt upon ourselves over and over and over. And sort of like the measure of how much we repent is how bad we feel. And sort of I'm repenting when I sort of, when my identity is, boy, I just feel really sort of that I've really just owned a lot of this and I feel really bad over and over. I've just felt bad for a while. So that's what true repentance is. That's, that's not repentance. Repentance isn't just sort of feeling so bad that we don't have any hope. 
and just adding guilt and condemnation to the list over and over and over again. It's not just sort of the sense of, I feel really broken by this. That, that, that brokenness is, is, is part of repentance, but it's not just sort of feeling really bad about sin. Now, it is owning the significance of sin, and it's owning the sorrow that should be there over the sinfulness of my heart and my action. But we also see it's not just sort of staying there, staying at this broken, bad place, but it's, it's, res- it's this resolution to come to the Lord as my help to not hide it, but to bring it to the light. We're going to see here uh, later on that Ezra brings in others as well. So repentance is not just sort of feeling bad, but it's, it's, it's actually driving me towards help and towards community and towards God as an act of owning my sin. So repentance is sad, but it's not just living in a state of despair. So repentance is, involves my emotions, but, but, it, but it's more than just a feeling we have. See, repentance is ultimately, and what we see as we're beginning to model here, is it's, it's a path we walk. We're going to see more of how he walked that path in chapter 10, but, but repentance is not, okay, I feel bad, and I'm going to feel bad for a while, but then at some point it'll be better, and we'll just kind of move on. Repentance is the path that puts, that, puts, that puts action, and that puts more and more sort of, so, okay, so as repenting, I'm putting this action more and more to death to walk in a new way of life. And we're going we're to look more at that in chapter 10. But repentance is not simply this one-time decision. Sort of, okay, I did this. I feel real bad. Here's my new commitment. Let's move on. But repentance is not a one-time decision. But repentance is this constant act of our wills and of our hearts. For the Christian, it's this, for the Christian, repentance is a lifestyle. It is a path we continually walk. In the gospel, we see over and over that we are called to repent and believe. That's not primarily given to be, okay, this is a one-time event in your life that you are to repent and believe, but this is a lifestyle of repentance, of walking away from sin and walking towards Jesus Christ. So we, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, boy, have I repented of this thing? Like it's a, it's a box we check, but rather, am I walking in repentance? I mean, like, for one example, we, we live in a world, right, with just, you don't need me to tell you, just so much sexual sin. And that many, in very obvious ways and many in more subtle ways, have just fallen, fallen trapped to this sin in some way. And we're going to talk more about the great hope we have for this sin and in any sin. But to, but, but to note, but when, when, some, when fun finds themselves in sin in this area, repentance involves seeing the purity of God and how far we short and taking it seriously. And in repentance, it also involves things like confession and accountability and eliminating devices and filters and on and on. Not because repentance is about adding a bunch of rules and adding legalism, but it's about because we want to walk in the path that leads to life, which, 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 which means we, we put sin to death because we recognize that sin kills us, sin pulls us away from our source of life, so we want to kill the sin and whatever it takes. We want to just be doing whatever we can as a lifestyle to be putting that to death. Let me just encourage anyone here who is is living in some sin that they have not repented of and that very probably that no one else sees or knows and 
you, you, you feel bad about it, and you would like it to be different, but your ultimate fear is not living in fear of a holy God, but, but your ultimate fear is either getting caught or having to give it up. I just want to implore you to repent. I promise you, your sin leads to death. That's what sin does. That's where sin goes every single time. And the life you will find is not in self-pity or in hiding. And we're going to talk about the God who is full of mercy, but you need to know that God already sees. He already knows. And he is so desirous to extend his mercy to you. But mercy is found in repentance, not hiding. And you need to be aware that when we think of the God who sees all and knows all and records all, in a sense, the camera doesn't miss a thing. So our great fear shouldn't be that we're caught by man, but our great fear should be that we are to live and we need to live in light of a holy God, that he is calling us to repent. And if there's anyone here who has never turned to God, who has never repented of their sins for the first time, I want to be clear that repentance, it it hurts, and it's costly, but it's also the path that leads to life. You know, my brother, when he, when he had his appendix removed, I'm not going to lie, it, it hurt. Like, he didn't really like going to the hospital and kind of, you know, getting, getting the scars and getting the stitches, and his had actually already burst, so they, he was, like, there a while, and, like, every day was painful for all this kind of stuff, and he had to take these drugs he didn't like. Like, it, it was, he, he didn't really like it. But it's also the thing that saved his life. And so, listen, sin, sin kills us. And, and, but in repentance, it doesn't just, we're not just walking away from sin, sort of as this begrudging duty of, okay, I've got to leave this thing that I really enjoyed and really liked, but, but we're walking to the source of our solution, which is Jesus Christ. And so we're not just walking away from sin, but we are walking towards life and the source of life. We see that modeled here as well. So point number three is the promise of mercy. The promise of mercy. So again, the main point is the road to redemptive grace. The promise of mercy. So in verse 10, after all this brokenness, after all this confession, what, what does he say? He says, oh, Lord, what, what shall we say after all this? Because he, he, he starts to realize I, we've got nothing to claim. We've got no defense He ends the prayer with, no one can stand before you. So when we're walking in repentance, what what do we really, when we really see our sin, what do we see? We see we have nothing to claim. We don't see that it wasn't really that bad. We don't, we we can't really just claim that we're going to do better next time. What we see is this, that no one can stand before a holy God. Except this, what Ezra notes. Our sins have made it so that none can stand before you. But then in verse 13 and 15, through 15, he notes, yet you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You have left a remnant. If you have left us like our sins deserve, we none would escape. And yet we haven't been treated that way. We haven't been treated as our sins deserve because God is rich in mercy. So Ezra knew ultimately he could claim God's mercy I do wonder if Ezra really knew how he could claim God's mercy. 
See, in verse 6, he says that he is so ashamed that so high are the sins of the people, so, so high are the sins of the people that they reach the heavens. So great is the iniquity of the people that Ezra feels like he cannot turn his face towards God. But God, in his mercy, so even though our sin makes it so that we can't turn our face towards God, God, in his mercy, never turns his face from his people. And so even though Ezra couldn't turn towards God, God never turned his face away from Ezra. And so our iniquities reached the heavens. So what had to happen? Heaven had to come to earth to deal with our iniquity. And in the moment of, the ult- of his ultimate anguish, God turned his face away from his own son so that he would never turn his face away from his people. So we have nothing to claim when we see our sin except the mercy of God. And in the mercy of God, we have everything to claim, and we need nothing else. God is rich in mercy, and his mercy has been proven and secured for us in Jesus Christ. So repentance is the road that leads, that repentance is the road that leads us to this road of redemptive and transforming grace, because it is the road that leads us away from what, what, what pulls us away and what kills us and destroys us. And so all true repentance points us to Jesus Christ and it puts us on the road to knowing Jesus Christ and to fully experiencing his mercy. So listen, how, how can this be? Listen, it's not just that because of Jesus Christ, our, our sins are magically forgiven. It's that Jesus Christ took all of our sin upon his body all of our lust and all of our anger and all of our greed and all of our selfishness and all of our laziness and all of our pride and all of our foolishness, he took all that upon himself and he died the death we deserved and he rose to new life and he was the conqueror of the grave and he was the conqueror of sin. So now Jesus not only forgives us of the penalty of sin, his mercy transforms us from the power of sin and one day we will be freed from the presence of sin. And so this is a call to repent and to walk in the light, and to get the help of others, and to turn to Jesus Christ, and to recognize that the path of life is the path of repentance. Whether it be the first time or the time that this is just too many to count, his grace is offered every time we walk the path of repentance. And repentance is what puts us on the road to redemptive grace. Let's pray. Father, would you... Would you help us to be a people? Lord, I pray for us corporately, but Lord, I pray for any individual here who is just, they are wrestling with a sin. And they see the solution, they see their hope as in hiding their sin or covering their sin more or just sort of fixing it on their own. Lord, would you Help us not to be those who hide our sins better from one another or from the world around us. But Lord, would you help us be a people that walk in repentance, that put sin to death, and in putting sin to death, we find new life in you. And Lord, we we can't kill our own sin because we have sinful hearts. So Lord, we put all of our trust and all of our hope into Jesus Christ who conquered our sin and who gave us his life, who has given us his righteousness. So Lord, our solution is not that we can do enough to kill our sin on our own, but in Jesus Christ, the conqueror of our sin, the conqueror of the grave, and in him we have life. So Lord, I pray for all of us to 
whatever sin we are walking in from the seemingly big to the seemingly small, that we would each walk the road of repentance and find life in Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.